Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Blue Cliff Record, Case 71. Gohos, shut up. Main subject. Yakujo <clears throat> said to Goho, with your mouth shut, how would you say it? Goho said, Osho, you should shut up. Yakujo said, in the distant land where no one stirs, I shall shade my eyes with my hand and watch for you. Secho's verse. <coughs> Osho, you should shut up. Upon the dragon's line, he plans his counterattack reminding us of General Lee. The arrow soars toward the lone kingfisher beyond the far-off horizon. Spring, rain, everything is opening up, each one of us opening up, this gentle, moist air. Spring session. This very place is the lotus land of purity. <clears throat> and particularly in the spring, I find myself missing Jisho. All the time, but particularly now. She so loved the first flowers and was such an extraordinary arranger, letting the flowers arrange themselves as in the fields, as the tea ceremony rules say. 
<coughs> she was born on the Ides of March and died on Mandala Day in March 2020. The last time I spoke about a case from the Blue Cliff Record, she was still alive. It was winter session 2020. And I remember optimistically talking about how the new year would be a time of clear vision, 2020 vision. After four years of the unmentionable, finally a new president, there was a new sense of, okay, yes, we can, once again. And then we all know what happened. <clears throat> Everything changed so radically, so suddenly, between January and February. We went to Zoom in our year of lockdown and further <clears throat> During 2021, the year of the ox, we examined the 10 ox herding pictures and began our cautious experiments with hybrid session like this one. Some in person, there are many more on Zoom. <clears throat> and thus we continue. Strongly continue. And now, finally, I'm taking up the Blue Cliff record once again. <clears throat> Case 71, it's the second of three on the same subject, featuring three disciples of Hyakujo Ekai Zenji, Isan Ryu, Goho Jokan, and Ungan Donjo. So, <clears throat> at that winter session, case 70, Isan, Goho, and Ungon were standing together in attendance on Hyakujo. Hyakujo said to Isan, with your mouth and lips closed, how would you say it? Isan replied, 
I would ask you to say it. Yakujo said, I could say it, but if I did so, I fear I should have no successors. <clears throat> Today, case 71, Yakujo asks the same question, and this time Goho is answering and saying, Osho, you should shut up. And at summer session, I will take up Ungon's reply in case 72. So you see the optimism continues. We really don't know. We don't know if we'll be here. We don't know if there will be a summer session. We just don't know. Nakajo Ekai Zenji lived from seven twenty to eight fourteen and was one of Basodo Itsuzenji's most important successors. You may remember the story. One day when he was serving as Inji, he saw Baso's hosu, his whisk. I don't have my whisk with me, but imagine long horse hair. He saw the whisk sitting on its stand. If someone uses this, can someone also not use it? Basso said, in the future, if you travel to some other place, how will you help people? Yakujo picked up the whisk, and held it upright. Basso said, if you use it this way, what other way can it be used? Yakujo placed the whisk back on its stand. Suddenly, Basso gave a great roar. Much louder than that. Hyakujo was deafened for three days. And this is obviously not a matter of volume and hearing, right? To be deafened 
to all the usual chatter, all the entangled thoughts, all the inner monologues. Not one single thing remains. This is what Yakujo transmitted to Obaku Kiyun, to Rinzai Gigan, and his successors, down through all the Japanese ancestors, the lineage through Hakuin Ekaku, and to right here now. At the same time, and this is important, gone, and yet, how do we function? Yakujo set forth the monastic procedures that we still follow today. three principal aspects of our practice. You know, number one, sasen. Number two, you could use that as number two. Okay, then number three, work. Some usually said Sazen, Samu, chanting. And they were laid out in what he called the pure rules for Zen gardens. Where are these gardens? Yes, exactly. Monks, lay people, then, now, we are all the spring flowers blooming in a Zen garden. Which flower are you? Narcissus? Hyacinth? Forsythia, maybe you are a red-winged blackbird, one was loudly giving us a long soliloquy yesterday afternoon or this morning, I can't remember. <laughs> How do we do Zazen? with one-pointed and unshakable fervor. Just sit. And when we 
have some insight. We can't speak of it. There's no way to describe or explain our usual discourse can't convey it. Lips and mouth shut. Or as the Zen expression goes, like a mute person with a dream. And yet, reverberating with it through and through, like Basso's shout. Yakujo's famous maxim was, a day without work is a day without eating. Did we all eat today? They must have worked hard. And how do we work? Hmm? Completely one with the task, not caught up in liking or disliking what we've been asked to do, just sweeping, just weeding, just washing up. No inner words about it. Work practice is none other than Zen practice. How you leave the bathroom when you're finished. Huh? Did you notice? So it's stillness in motion. And yet, even though we are just one, not thinking about it, we are caring for what it is we are taking care of, right? We are tending. We have to have awareness of what it is that we are doing, how to do it, what is appropriate. How to be in relationship with our work. How to have as our indigenous friends often say, reciprocity with it. So not just, okay, well, I'll get through this and then I get a chance to take a walk. Every single moment of what it is we are taking care of is so precious. So Sons Zenji told us yesterday, 
Just avoid getting caught up in preferences. When you are free from aversion and craving, it reveals itself fully and without disguise. So whatever the work is, is indeed the spark. Spark. Problem? Oh, okay. I cannot be basso. I'm sorry. It's the same with chanting. When we really throw ourselves into chanting, our busy brains, our thought formations about what we like, are seeking definitions and meaning all drop away. Well, I can't chant unless I know what I'm chanting. I heard that. You can't chant if you know what you're chanting. You know, it's quite extraordinary. <clears throat> when we don't know what those syllables mean. Fantastic. Congratulations. The discriminating mind is not invited, not invited to chanting party. <laughs> the deeper meaning beyond discursive logic, right? Beyond any particular language can only be felt, not understood, right? You agree? Oh, good. Particularly with Dharani, like Daihishu, Namukara, Tanya, the syllables themselves are esoteric. They are each interrelating, forming this cosmic mantra, invoking the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, past, present, future, not as beings outside us. There are no such constructs So we become them. From the beginning, we have been nothing but. And how urgent it is, right? How urgent at this time of worldwide suffering, global illness, war, homelessness, hunger, the Earth's plight to become Kanzeon, Avalokiteshvara, Bodhisattva, Tara, to hear all cries. When we chant, this is what's happening. 
to become Jizo Bodhisattva, going to hell to liberate beings from suffering. Chanting Onga Kagabizamai Swaka, extending this mind of compassion to Ukraine, to hospital wards, to urban tent cities to failing farms, to Mother Earth, and to realize that Earth Day is every day, and that what we do matters. So now, Yakujo asks us, with your mouth shut, how do you say it? How do you express it? Some of you know case 20 from the Mumonkan, the gateless barrier the second part of that case, a person of great strength. The second part goes, it is not the tongue with which one speaks. How do we speak with our mouths shut? without the tongue. Of course, the usual way we use words from the discursive intellect is weighing, evaluating, projecting, defining, conceptualizing, in short, making something out of nothing. So we use words, use, commodify what is wanted to be experienced directly. And the moment we say it, in quotes, is polluting it. And yet, as the late Soto teacher Dainin Katagiri Roshi titled one of his books, anybody know? You have to say something. You have to say something. 
you have to say something with your mouth shut. How do we express this directly? Through our own unmediated experience, no mediation, no comparisons, no explanations. There is a koan in the collection Entangling Vines, it's case 81. And a monk asks Engo Kokugon, who figures prominently in the Blue Cliff record as commentator. He asks, what is Buddha? That's a question we've heard many times, many koans, right? What is Buddha? When they're not asking, why did Bodhidharma come from the West? They're asking, what is Buddha? What is the essential nature of Bodhidharma? Some such things. What is Buddha? Engo said, the mouth is the gate of misfortune. The mouth. You open your mouth. It's the gate of misfortune. I think we've all experienced this, right? I know I have. I was thinking about this just the other day. I opened my mouth. I make an observation or I ask a question. Oops. It becomes an immediate source of confusion or irritation for the person I'm addressing. How many of you are now confused? Irritated? Why is this? I may have a perfectly benign intent, at least on the conscious level, I'm not being critical or judgmental or trying to obfuscate some important matter. Yet that can be how it's taken. And this benign statement, before I know it, has evolved into an argument. You know, like, wait a minute, that's not what I meant. Right? That's the opening artillery. <laughs> and it really doesn't matter. But it seems as though it does. 
maybe it triggered something in the other person that I wasn't aware of. Or perhaps on a deeper level, I was quite aware of it. We have to really notice what's going on under that surface. It's no one's fault, yet war has begun. And immediately, I may find myself seeking justification, trying to explain. And it's like the Miranda rights, you know? You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you. It goes on court of law, but where is this court of law? Right? It's right, and this is it. It's so helpful to remember this, isn't it? Even if being silent, we feel, oh, I'm evading my responsibility to clear this up. My responsibility, right? There is no need, really, to perpetuate that endless round. We can bow out at any time. Just shut up. The mouth is the gate of misfortune. So Hyakujo's challenge to his disciples and to us, with your mouth and lips closed, how would you say it? Is not only about the impossibility of conveying it using a stinky term like truth or fundamental reality, it's also the impossibility of saying it using words that come from or lead to yes, no, right, wrong, you, me. It's not with the tongue that one speaks. What underlies true communication is not a mere exchange of information or some kind of rationalization for views that are based on old patterns, personal agendas, karmic imprints. Aren't all our views based on such things?
So neither speech nor silence will do to respond to Hyakujo. When we see them dualistically that way. How do we speak from non-dual, non-habitual, unconditional truth, the truth that is our birthright, as we just chanted? Sentient beings are fundamentally Buddhist. How do we speak directly from our Buddha nature? In the Diamond Sutra, it says, truth is uncontainable and inexpressible. It neither is nor is it not. So we have to drop everything we've ever thought about our lives. Who we are, what we do, what we know, all our opinions. And in doing this, if we feel somehow that we are out of touch with that fundamentally Buddha nature. If we feel tangled up in blue, as Dylan put it, then maybe it's best not to speak. Wait a minute. Can sit down, shut up, listen. And I find that what is really helpful is to turn to Tisarana, right in the middle of whatever the entanglement may be. Just Buddham Saranam Gachami. Don't do it out loud, right? Just Dhamam Saranam Gachami. Sangham Saranam Gachami. It's so refreshing. And it makes us realize that everything that we were holding on to is really inessential. That I doesn't know. This ego entity cannot meet any challenge without messing it up. And of course, you know, problems happen when we think that there is some truth that lies elsewhere out there. You know, 
once we are enlightened, then we'll be free from all our deluded thoughts, words, actions, all our harmful karma. Speaking of delusions, the most famous, perhaps, the most extraordinary koan in the Mumon Khan involves Hyakujo. Case two. An old man stands behind the monks every day listening to Hyakujo's shows. And finally, Hakujo asks him, who are you? And he says, I am not a human being. I'm a fox. And it seems that when many, many, many couples ago, he was the head monk on that mountain. And someone asked him, does an enlightened person fall under the yoke of causation? And he said, no, an enlightened person does not fall under the yoke of causation. So he was turned into a fox 500 lifetimes. The fox in Asian folklore, as you probably know, is considered very crafty, sly, sneaky, something of a shapeshifter. And he can take, or she can take various forms, in this case, an old man. So to be doomed to 500 lifetimes as a fox is some karmic retribution. Why, you may wonder, such a severe effect for the cause of his answer? After all, does not fall under the cause of causation seems perfectly reasonable, right? What is enlightenment anyway? When we put it that way, we're already falling. It's already problematic. But you might continue. Isn't it liberation? Isn't enlightenment perfect freedom? Therefore, it must be beyond the endless round of birth and death. This is how our rational minds work. If this, then that. Not subject to karma. So this is how we surmise. Theorizing this way, having our own experience, very different. So being doomed to be a fox for 500 lifetimes is actually appropriate. It's said that the worst crime for a Buddhist teacher is to teach false dharma, to lead others astray. 
pretending to know and thinking no one will know the difference. Watch out. We might also imagine admiringly that someone who dwells in the realm of the unconditioned is not subject to the law of causation. But again, one can't dwell. There's nowhere to dwell. Once we attach to a state of mind, it's just another trap. Buddha told us this morning in the Diamond Sutra, this dharma is like a raft. Buddha teaching must be relinquished. How much more so misteaching. And we also heard a bodhisattva should cultivate a mind that alights on nothing whatsoever. No dependence, no dwelling, no attachment. We don't know much about Goho uh, in this case, just that he was a disciple of Yakujo, which is enough. His response here was so swift, so tough, indeed a steep cliff. Osho, you should shut up. There is nowhere to get a toehold. He's manifesting the absolute, holding fast. Cutting through. Osho. Before your words, it's already here. You've already said too much. Say it without using your mouth. Too much. And so Goho shows complete independence. He has, in Rinzai's words, come before Yakujo in solitary freedom. Yakujo's reply is so poetic, so beautiful. 
in the distant land where no one stirs, I shall shade my eyes with my hand and watch for you. I await your arrival. And this really can be seen as quite an admiring statement, right? And yet, when will you arrive? He's checking his student. Are you stuck there, enjoying your solitude, yet unable to function? Holding fast is worthy. But show me how you let go. To be in ordinary life, meeting circumstances as they arise, you must arrive. So Yakujo is implying in your absolute samadhi, are you able to enact your vow to save all beings, to care for all beings. There are so many koans that raise this point. We may admire someone's profound practice, someone who seems completely undistracted undistractable by circumstances. But the challenge, our challenge is to come from the depths instantly when called upon to act, and then to return with no lingering, second-guessing, wondering if our response succeeded or not, or if we have the approval of someone we care for. No getting caught in such dualism. Just realizing nothing has any intrinsic separate, unchanging substance. As Sosan Zenji put it, in one emptiness, the two are not distinguished, and each contains in itself all the 10,000 things. When no discrimination is made between this and that, how can a one-sided 
and prejudiced view arise. There is an interesting exchange between the Buddha and Manjushri in another of the entangling vines cases. As Buddha was about to enter into Parinirvana, Manjushri asked him to turn the wheel of Dharma one more time. The Buddha admonished him, saying, for 49 years I have dwelt in the world, but I have yet to preach a single word. You ask me to once again turn the wheel of Dharma, but have I ever turned the wheel of Dharma? I have yet to preach a single word. It cannot be preached. Yet we seek it from someone else. We want to find someone to depend on. Buddha, please teach us one more time. As the Rolling Stones sang, we all need someone to lean on. But here, and all throughout the Diamond Sutra, Buddha refuses. It cannot be grasped. It cannot be found in the words of another. There is no ground beneath our feet. And when we truly feel this, this radical, way of being, that's where faith begins. Faith in mind, trust in dharma, no doctrine, no dogma, no definitions, no roadmap, no. So, Secho's verse, he repeats Goho's words. Osho, you should shut up. Osho, shut up, shuts everything down. Utter silence. Next line, upon the dragon's line, he plans his counterattack, reminding us of general we. So this is a reference to engaging in Dharma combat with Yakuja. Goho sees his teachers, or here it's called the dragons, battle formation clearly in every direction and is ready to act, ready to come forth. And the comparison is to a general named Li Guang, 
who was renowned for his skill as an archer and as a general undefeatable. He successfully fought the Huns on northern frontiers of China during the Western Han Dynasty a few years ago, mid-2nd century before the Common Era. General Li. And the last two lines, the arrow soars toward the lone kingfisher beyond the far-off horizon. So the implication here on the Secho is that Yakujo's challenge is like the soaring flight of a kingfisher hawk. And Goho's response is soaring too. But does his arrow hit the mark? Or does his prey get away? Yakujo's words reverberate in the distant land where no one stirs. I shall shade my eyes with my hand and watch for you. Don't think it's some ninth-century dharma combat. Become intimate with Yakujo. He awaits you. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Thank you for listening.